Let's pray. God, thank you for the gift of a new day. Thank you for who you are. God, thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather and to worship you. Thank you for the gifted and talented musicians that uh, you have blessed us with who are leading us today and who lead us every Sunday. God, we ask now as we begin to look at the end of the book of Acts on Sunday mornings that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to what you have for us, that we would not just see what it is that you were doing 2,000 years ago, but we would see what it is that you're doing in our world today and in our lives. Uh, God, we can uh, look to Paul, and he's a great example, but also it's, uh, those words are there for us to apply them to our lives, and so God, we ask that you would help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Two weeks to go in our finishing study of the book of Acts. Uh, we got this week and we got last week. If you want to read ahead, you can see everything we're going to cover next Sunday. The section that we're in now towards the end is, is really focused on Paul. It's focused on Paul and some of the decisions that he has made that have put him in a situation that maybe he wouldn't have needed to be in, but he is nonetheless. We're going to see him uh, on trial in jail dealing with primarily leaders who are going to decide his fate. Last week we talked about a guy named Felix who was in charge of deciding what was going to happen with Paul, ended up asking him a whole lot of questions. But he didn't make any decisions because the Jews want Paul gone. They want him to be put away, uh, preferably killed. Felix gives way to a guy named Festus, and we pick up with Festus today, but we meet a new character. His name is King Agrippa. He's King Agrippa II, Herod Agrippa. He is uh, the son of Herod Agrippa I, and every time we hear his name, it seems that he's tied with someone, and it's Bernice, his sister Bernice. Luke, who writes the book of Acts, is doing Herod and Bernice a, a real kind favor, because he's not telling the whole story. When we read about Agrippa and Bernice, his half-sister, they're actually living together as husband and wife. They're not married. I suppose that they could have been given the culture, but Agrippa is a Jewish man. And uh, he is a, a Maccabean. If you have ever been a part of the church that has a Bible that has that middle section of Scripture, there's the Old Testament, and then there's a, a group of books in the middle called the Apocrypha, and then there's the New Testament. It's called the intertestamental period for churches that read them. Uh, the reason that it's not in most of our Bibles is there's just not enough copies out there uh, that are significantly consistent that we include them as a part of Scripture. But they do tell some part of the story of the Jewish people. Herod Agrippa was a Maccabean, a Jewish man who was serving as king in this area. So we're going to pick it up in 25, chapter, or chapter 25, verse 13. A few days later, King, king Agrippa, King Herod Agrippa II, arrived with his sister Bernice. This is where Luke is being kind to them. There's a lot more to the story that Luke could tell. To pay their respects to Festus, who is now in charge of this part of uh, Judea. During their stay of several days, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. Why? Because it's important, because the Jewish people are looking to revolt, and the Romans are doing their best to keep a peace, and whoever is in charge of leading them, keeping a peace is highest priority. There's a prisoner here, he told him, whose case was left for me by Felix. When I was in Jerusalem, the leading priests and the Jewish elders pressed charges against him and asked me to condemn him. What's interesting is the Jewish leaders are taking out of their playbook the very same thing they did to someone else not so long ago, a man named Jesus. 
They went to the Roman authorities and they complained that this guy is upsetting everything we've ever done. He is spreading rumors and he's telling lies and he's trying to lead people away from our religion. And they knew the only reason the Romans were going to care was because the Romans were worried about peace. They didn't care about the Jewish religion. They cared about peace in the area. And so they're using the same trick from the same playbook against Paul. And they want the same result. They want Paul dead. I pointed out to them that Roman law does not convict people without a trial. The Romans took great pride in their fairness in their courts. They must be given an opportunity to confront their uh, accusers and to defend themselves. When his accusers came here for the trial, I didn't delay. Festus is recalling with the king how well and how quickly he's acted. I didn't delay. I called the case the very next day and ordered Paul brought in, which is true. But the accusations made against him weren't any of the crimes that I expected. You have to look at this and read it. It is so important to Luke that he gets the language, the dialogue, the conversation just right. What's happening here in this exchange is important. Because while Luke wasn't one of the original 12 disciples, Luke was around during that time. He know what happened, knew what happened to Jesus. He would have been in Jerusalem when it was going on. He sees the parallel that's happening here with Paul as well. And he's helping to make sure that we see it. Instead, it was something about their religion and a dead man named Jesus. Felix knows well who Jesus was who Paul insists is alive. I was at a loss to how to investigate these things, so I asked him whether he'd be willing to stand trial on these charges in Jerusalem. But Paul appealed to have his case decided by the emperor, so I ordered that he be held in custody until I could arrange to send him to Caesar. All of that is true. Paul had the right as a Roman citizen to be tried before Caesar in Rome. Whether that was the best decision on his part remains to be seen. Agrippa says, I'd like to hear the man myself. Festus replied, you will tomorrow. Festus wants to make sure that King Agrippa knows that he's a man of action because Felix was not. Felix dragged his feet. He kept Paul in prison for two years. He never ended up making a substantial decision about him. And what Festus wants the king to know is that I'm moving on this. I'm trying to take care of it. I want to keep the peace. I want to deal with the guy. We get to the next verse. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice, together again, the two of them, arrived at the auditorium with great pomp, accompanied by military officers and prominent men of the city. If you were important, you were there. It was a parade for the king. Festus ordered that Paul be brought in. Then Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are here, this is the man whose death is demanded by the Jews, both here and in Jerusalem. The exact same thing the Jews did with Jesus. They demanded that the Romans put him to death for charges that they made up that weren't even real. <clears throat> but in my opinion, uh, he's done nothing wrong, deserving death. However, he has since appealed his case to the emperor. I have decided to send him to Rome. But what shall I write the emperor? For there is no clear charge against him. Now he's really talking to the king. I brought him here before all of you, and especially you, King Agrippa, so that after we examine him, I might have something to write. Makes no sense to send a prisoner to the emperor without specifying the charges against him. He doesn't want to bother Caesar. He doesn't want his name to come up on Caesar's daily roster with the case that doesn't make any sense. Festus wants to let Paul go. 
Festus, Festus said, I've listened to him. I've talked to him. I've listened to him. He spent, we found out last week, a good amount of time with him. Just like with Jesus, just like Pontius Pilate, who washed his hands, said, I can't find anything the man's done wrong. Festus is saying the same thing to Agrippa. So help me come to terms with how I write a letter to Caesar that tells Caesar this guy is worth wasting his time over. All because Paul demanded an audience. As a Roman, he had the right to do that. What's interesting, and as we watch this going uh, playing out here over the next couple of chapters, was that something that God called him to do, or was that something that Paul did because he had the right to do it and he insisted on his rights? It remains to be seen, but we get a pretty good glimpse into it in a little bit. Agrippa said to Paul, chapter 26, verse 1, You may speak in your defense. So Paul gestured with his hand. I've always wondered what that gesture would have been. Would it have been to listen? Would it have been to come here? I wonder what he did. He gestured with his hand, starting his defense. I am fortunate, King Agrippa, that you're the one hearing my defense today against all these accusations made by the Jewish leaders. For I know you are an expert on all Jewish customs and controversies because he is a Jewish man himself. Please listen to me patiently. Paul is not one to butter people up in hopes to get their ear. So there's a reason that he's had this introduction to the king. And the reason is because the king is Jewish. What Paul is going to do is to appeal not just to uh, Festus, but to Agrippa and the fact that Agrippa is a Jewish man who must claim some connection to his faith. Verse 4, as the Jewish leaders are well aware, I was given a thorough Jewish training from my earliest childhood among my own people and in Jerusalem. He tells us other places he trained under the feet of Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was the most important rabbi to learn from, the, the greatest teacher in Jerusalem. If they would admit it, they know that I have been a member of the Pharisees, the strictest sect of our religion. Paul makes two comments here. He's laying the ground for a statement that he's going to make about Jesus later. But he's also saying, I'm one of you. I trained as a Pharisee. Paul is saying, I am so passionate about my religion. But what's interesting, they're thinking Paul has changed his religion, that he's thrown it away. Paul is going to make the case over the next few verses that he hasn't changed his religion. He has seen it in its full light. And the answer in the name of the light is Jesus. He's trying to build a connection to the Jewish people in front of the Romans. Now, I am on trial because of my hope in the fulfillment of God's promise made to our ancestors. He's saying, I've read the Old Testament and I've studied it just like you have. And God makes a promise for a Messiah. God tells us that he's going to send us a savior. In fact, that's why the 12 tribes of Israel zealously worship God night and day. And they share the same hope that I have. The 12 tribes of Israel, the ancient tribes of Israel going all the way back to the Old Testament. Paul is saying, I have the same hope that they have, and the hope is for a Savior. Yet, Your Majesty, they accuse me for having this hope. He's calling them out as hypocrites. He's calling them out as hypocrites for saying they believe one thing, but for then calling him out and saying that he's guilty of death because he believes it and he has a hope that they don't share. He's saying the answer to all of your Old Testament promises and prophecies is a Messiah by the name of Jesus. And that's who Paul's been preaching. And so the problem that he's got with these people is the Jews didn't believe that Jesus was the Savior. They really got upset when Paul went out and said that God is there to save the Gentiles as well. What he's doing is calling them hypocrites. I was violently opposed. Uh, excuse me. Uh, I used to believe, nope, lost my place. 
They accuse me for having this hope. Why does it seem incredible to any of you that God can raise the dead? He is challenging them to putting a limit on God. Do you really think that God can't do that after everything that you've studied in your scriptures? I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus the Nazarene. He's getting to his passion. He's getting to how he is such a religious man. He was completely religiously Jewish, and now he is completely committed, passionately a Christian who follows Jesus. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priests, I caused many believers, he's talking about Christians, to be sent to prison. I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. Paul is telling his story. He's telling his credentials for being a Jew among Jews. And we talked a few weeks ago that we all have a story. But then as Christians who believe in Jesus, we have a testimony. Our story is the things that we maybe poured ourselves into that we did outside of what God's will for us was. That's our story. Often it's a story of our failures. Our testimony is the story of a God who never gave up on us. Our testimony is God at work in our life. And Paul right now is telling them what his story is. I chased them down in foreign cities. You hear about this. I was so violently opposed. He was there when I condemned them to death. I had them punished in the synagogues. There are Christians today. We had a woman, Charmaine, who came and spoke to us a few months ago. She spends her life. She is dedicated. She is passionate about helping Christians who are being chased down by other religious groups and trying to have them jailed and put to death. What's happening in the book of Acts still happens in our world. Some of you got to meet a woman who was on the front line of literally saving and rescuing those people. So as Paul is going between his story and his testimony, he says, one day I was on a mission to Damascus, armed with the authority of the commission of the leading priests. About noon, your majesty, as I was on the road, a light from heaven brighter than the sun shone down on me and my companions. We all fell down and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic. Aramaic is important because the Jewish people didn't speak Aramaic. Jesus did. Jesus spoke this this small language that not a whole lot of people did. The Bible is written in three, three languages. It's written Hebrew and Greek and thanks to Jesus, Aramaic. I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's useless for you to fight against my will. My Bible has those letters in red. Those are the words of Jesus. But something about that didn't strike me quite right. I went back to Acts 9, verse 4. You can look it up. The Bible says that when Jesus first spoke to Paul, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, Paul recounts that. But then he adds, it's useless for you to fight against my will. That wasn't a part of what was originally said. And you hear it, it's attributed to Jesus. And I have to wonder if that's not what Paul has learned in the moments since that time on the road to Damascus. Have you ever listened to a message or heard something or even the words of a song and you walked away believing and learning and growing and being convicted by something that wasn't even said? It's real. It fits with Scripture. It's who God God has revealed Himself to be. But it isn't quite the same. This is one of those things. Paul realizes that it's useless to fight against God's will. A good lesson for you and I today. He says, Who are you, Lord? The Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now get to your feet, for I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness. He is telling them that 
that this mission that he's on, this call of his life, came straight from Jesus. Tell people that you have seen me and tell them what I will show you in the future. I will rescue you from both your own people, who he is in front of, and from the Gentiles. That's who the Romans are. Yes, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. The Gentiles are all of us who are not born Jewish. All of the world outside of Israel that is not Jewish by birth is considered a Gentile. Paul is talking to both Jews and Gentiles. The Gentiles are the Romans. They may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Do you have any idea how appropriate that is for our world today? Turn from darkness to light and from Satan to God. Our world is being surrounded and overrun by darkness and the power of Satan. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by me, by faith in me. What Paul is recounting is that first encounter where he was radically transformed. But he's also recounting his call. He's recounting where his purpose comes from, where his passion is being directed. He's recounting in front of all of these people what exactly it is that drives him. And so he goes on and he says, So King Agrippa, I obeyed that vision from heaven. I preached first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, first to the Jews, and throughout all Judea and also to the Gentiles, that all might repent of their sins and turn to God, and prove that they have changed by the good things they do. Some Jews arrested me in the temple for preaching this, and they tried to kill me for doing what? Preaching the fulfillment of God's word in Jesus. But God has protected me right up to this present moment. So I can testify to everyone from the least to the greatest. I teach nothing except what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead and this way announce God's light to the Jews and the Gentiles alike. He is owning up to their charges that he preached to the Gentiles. He's acknowledging that's true, but the Romans don't care. doesn't matter to them a bit. Suddenly, Festus, remember where he comes from, Jewish Festus shouts, Paul, you're insane. Too much study has made you crazy. Remember what they said about the disciples when the Holy Spirit descended on them on the day of Pentecost? They said, you've had too much wine. Sometimes when you live out your passion, sometimes when you live out your faith, people think there's something wrong with you. But the fact is, as much as they want to try to convince you there's something wrong with you, what you're doing is shining a light on what's wrong with them. That they've been overtaken by darkness. And Paul wants to do everything that he can to help people out of the darkness. But Paul replied, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is the sober truth. And King Agrippa knows about these things. I speak boldly, for I'm sure these events are all familiar to him, for they were not done in a corner. King Agrippa, and now he's going to turn the tables on this Jewish man. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And he turns the tables and he says to King Agrippa, in all of his power, with all of his pomp and circumstance, and all of his earthly glory, do you believe in the prophets that you say that you worship? Do you believe that God is going to send his son, that there's going to be a savior? And he says, I know that you do. It's one of those moments where King Agrippa has got a line in the sand that's been drawn for him. You've had that in your life on different things, but you know what? When it comes to a belief in Jesus, every one of us has that line in the sand. And either we say, you know what? I choose to believe that you are who you say you are, Jesus, or I choose not to. 
And whatever your decision is, it changes your life literally forever, for all eternity. When I was at seminary, I met a man who reminded me of Paul more than anybody I've ever known. He uh, was a few years older than me. We got to know each other because we were both older than average students. Met in the cafeteria one day, started a conversation. His life was absolutely fascinating and tragic. He got married, had some kids. He was Jewish. His family was Jewish. All of his relatives were Jewish. Everybody around him was Jewish. They followed faithful, traditional Jewish religious practices, but he made one mistake. He fell in love with a Catholic girl. He fell in love with her. They got married. They had kids. It didn't take too long, a few years down the road, and she said, I really wish that you'd become a Christian so that we could raise our kids in the same church. I don't like raising them with two different faiths. And so he started to study. He started to read about Jesus. He started to read the New Testament. And he realized everything that he'd been taught as a Jewish child growing up in the Bible, he believed with. He didn't have any issue with. It was all true as far as he was concerned. But he hadn't been told something. What he hadn't been told was about Jesus. And as he studied and read the New Testament, everything started to make sense. His phrase to me was, it was like a light went on. And all these things that I read, I suddenly understood. And what I understood them was, I understood them as was Jesus. And he became radically transformed. He began to believe in Jesus. He studied more. He gave his life to Jesus. He went back to his wife and he said, thank you. I'm all in. I'm 100%. I, I believe in who He is. I've given my life to Him. And she said, all that I asked was for you to let us raise the kids in the same church. Why do you have to go off the deep end? His newfound believer passion was more than she wanted. If she had had a passion, it had long since grown cold. She just wanted to be able to raise the kids in the same place. And so two interesting things happened. The first thing that happened was that she left them and took the kids. I'm not about to be married to somebody who's crazy as you. They thought he was insane. His life reminds me of the life of Paul. And he said, I just did what you asked to, and you know what? You actually are the one that introduced me to Jesus, and he's real, and I know it now, so thank you. And she took the kids and left. And then he found out when his family stopped returning phone calls, because he realized that this Jesus that he had met, all of these people that he knew and loved and cared about didn't know him. They were ignoring him. They didn't believe in him. And it became his passion in life. It became his call. It became his mission to share the good news of Jesus with his family and friends. He said, there's all these Jewish people out there that are ready for him, but they don't believe in him. Everything that they know is true. They just haven't met him. And he decided, I'm going to give my life to that. And he found out after his family stopped responding to his phone calls, wouldn't be in touch with him anymore, that his father called for a funeral. And they had a funeral for him because he said, my son is dead. He gave his life to Jesus and he lost his wife and children and he lost his family. And you know what his response was? He went to the seminary. He went to the seminary because that's where he could learn the Bible. He could learn more about Jesus and he could be equipped to share the good news of the gospel that he was now living in with the people that he cared about. That's passion. I've lost touch with him over the years. I wish I wouldn't have. But I have, and I don't know what became of them. But I remember saying to him, I want your passion. I don't want your struggle. I don't want the problems you're facing, but I want your passion. I was blessed to grow up in a Christian home with Christian parents. I don't have that radical story. I don't have that one day that everything changed. It, it kind of like just, I grew up in it and I always knew that it was true. And it makes me wonder, what's your passion? 
I learn more about Jesus and what it means to be an on-fire Christian from him than anything else in my time in ministry. A guy whose wife and kids left him and his family called him dead and had a funeral for him. Because he was willing to give up everything that he had on this, on this earth to follow Jesus. You're that passionate about something. Could be a hobby. Could be a car or a house or a job or earning money. Could be a person. You're that passionate about something all of us are because God made us passionate people. You want to talk passion? Passion is Jesus walking to his death on the cross for something he had never done because he loved you that much. That's passion. I read this passage about Paul and all that I read is passion. Paul is so committed to getting the good news of Jesus, not just to his own people, but to the whole world. What are you passionate about? And if your answer is nothing, why? You're missing out on one of the most wonderful things that God gives us, which is the ability to be passionate. Paul is passionate about the good news of Jesus. So much so that he's willing to go to jail. Now, Paul isn't a perfect man. We know that Paul isn't a perfect man. He's like you and I. He's a sinner just like we are. He makes some choices and some decisions and does some things I don't understand. seems to me that he's heading out on his own and he kind of forgot about God for a moment. We can understand that. Your passion doesn't make you perfect. But your passion can make you useful for God if our passion is directed to giving God glory and introducing people to Jesus. So he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. This is King Agrippa's moment in the sand, and Agrippa interrupted him. Do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? He tries to turn it back on Paul, but it's interesting. He uses the word Christian. Throughout the book of Acts, we've referred to it as the way. That's what it was called. And this is one of the first times that it's used. Do you think you can make me become a Christian so quickly? Paul replied to him, whether quickly or not, I pray to God that both you and everyone here in this audience might become the same as I am, except for these chains. What is Paul? Paul is passionate. Paul knows what it is to live without Jesus, to live in the darkness. Paul literally knows what it's like to be encountered by the light, to meet Jesus, to be radically transformed, and to be passionate for Him. Paul says, it is my desire... I pray to God that you and everyone in this audience, so I would say everyone who is here and listening right now, might become the same as what Paul is, except for these chains. I don't want you to have to be in prison for what you believe, but I want you to be passionate. Then the king, the governor, Bernice again, and all the others stood and left. As they went out, they talked it over. They didn't talk about the challenge. They didn't talk about, what do you think? What are you going to do? Do you believe? Do you you think he's telling you the truth? What's your response? That's not what they talked about. They agreed this man hasn't done anything to deserve death or imprisonment. The same thing that they found with Jesus. He hasn't done anything. He doesn't deserve to be dead. He doesn't even deserve to be in prison. And Agrippa said to Festus, he could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. I asked a couple weeks ago when we saw Paul making that statement that as a Roman citizen, I appeal to Caesar. I want to go to the highest court in the land. Was that Paul pushing what he was allowed to do under the law or was that God's will? I don't know. We never will until we get to heaven. But it seems if he hadn't made that decision, he could have walked away a free man today. He ignored the, the folks who spoke prophetic words from the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem and he went. 
Now, what we know about Paul is he, he makes the best out of every circumstance. He gives thanks and he finds a way to bring glory to God. He finds a way to preach Jesus and he does that and he continues to do to that. But it seems at this point they would have set him free. So Paul, at this point, we know he's got passion. He's got purpose. He has a story and a testimony. He has faith and he has an eternal mindset that every single living soul on earth is either going to heaven or to hell. They're either going to live in the darkness or they're going to live in the light. They're going to be controlled by the power of Satan or they're going to live in grace under the power of God. Paul has passion and a purpose. Whether it lands him in jail or a free man on the streets, Paul is going to preach because it's his passion. What's your passion? What is it you really care about? What do you wake up in the morning that you can't wait to do? What's that one thing that you would sell or give everything away for if it came down to it? What is that one thing? Maybe it's a hobby and you spend a ridiculous amount of money on your hobby. That's your passion. As I was getting ready for this, I realized I've got a lot of hobbies that I want to pursue. I don't have a lot of time, which means I don't really have any hobbies that are a passion. My daughter called me out on years ago. She's right. I could sell a whole bunch of stuff. Just sits there and doesn't get used. What's your passion? What's the one thing that nothing and no one can stop you from doing? What's the one thing that you believe in that will never be changed, that, that will never be shaken, that no one can take you away from? What's your passion? See, God has blessed all of us with the ability to have passion. He's given us His Christian purpose. He's given us a call and a mission. And so the thing I'm going to leave you with is really as simple as this. Your passion directs your life. Your passion, not your job, that's the thing you might grind away at 50 hours every week, but if it isn't your passion, nope, you're just spending your time there. You're giving it your time. Your passion is going to be what you're remembered for. Your passion is what people know about you. Your passion is the thing that really matters. And so here is my question. What are you living for And what are you giving to? Those two things will tell you what your passion is. What are you living for and what are you giving to? Where your time and your mind and your heart go and where your money goes. That's your passion. All of us would love to say that it's Jesus, but I don't think that's always true for us. What are you living for and what are you giving to? That's your passion. Let's pray. God, thank you for Paul. Thank you for the way that he was such an incredibly devoted, committed, faithful follower of yours. And thank you, God, that there are signs that he is a person just like we are. His life is messy. Some of his choices don't make sense. But God, it didn't matter where he was. It didn't matter what happened to him, the condition or the circumstance or the situation. He always looked to speak about you. He always looked for an opportunity to tell people about Jesus. What we know about Paul is that you were his passion. God, we've got the opportunity to live as people who are known for our passion as well. Help us to be known as people who truly live for our passion that is you. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's the deal. As I read Paul and as I go through the book of Acts and and, uh, I read chunks ahead of what we've been through and, and chunks of where we're going every week, Paul's not a perfect man. He's not a perfect person. He didn't live a perfect life. You you talk about his life before he became a Christian. That's the kind of thing you want to have forgotten. And yet the Bible records it for all of history. Here's the lesson for us. God is not looking for sinless perfection from you. 
God is not expecting you to be a sinless person. That's why he sent us Jesus. What, is, what God is looking for us to do is to be people who live a passionate life as we live for Jesus. That we can do. To be perfect, we cannot. To live passionately for Jesus, we can. You're going to be passionate about something. You are going to give your time and your life and your attention and your affection and your finances to something. There's nothing in this world that will last longer because it will go for an eternity if you give your passion to Jesus.